Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. A.W. Tozer has written, It is doubtful that God can use any person greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Search through the pages of Scripture, and you'll discover that the men and women who were most used by God were those who went through the severest tests in life. Do you want to be used by God in a significant way? Do you desire to have his stamp of approval on your life before you answer too quickly? Consider the experience of Abraham. I'm convinced that there is a defining moment in every person's life, a defining moment that reveals what is truly in a person's heart. It reveals his character. For Abraham Lincoln, the defining moment was the Civil War. For George W. Bush, it was 9-11. For David, it was that night with Bathsheba. For Adam and Eve, it was that experience with the serpent in the garden. But everybody has a defining moment. Today, we're going to look at Abraham's defining moment. It was the greatest test that he ever experienced. And it reveals to us how to respond when those tests, not if, but when they come into our lives. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 22 as we look at Abraham's greatest test. Now, the first phrase in Genesis 22:1 gives us the preparation <clears throat> for the test. Now, it came about <clears throat> after these things. Now, any student of the Bible would pause there and say, after what things? Well, after everything that had happened to Abraham up to this point. I mean, just think about all that had happened. When he was 60 years of age, he was an idol worshiper living in Ur of the Chaldees. He heard the voice of God for the first time saying, Abraham, I want you to uproot your family and everything familiar to you, and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And by the way, even though you don't have any children, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation and the Bible says Abraham believed God. Genesis 15, 6, his faith was counted as righteousness. And after he went on a 15-year detour, he finally ended up in the promised land at age 75. But there was no child yet. He waited for 10 years until he was 85. And then he and Sarah decided they needed to help God fulfill his promise. So they came up with that disastrous idea of having a relationship with Hagar. And you know how that ended. Abraham and Hagar had a son together, Ishmael, but that wasn't God's plan. Ishmael was born when Abraham was 86 years of age. For the next 13 years, God was silent. But Abraham kept believing God. And finally, at age 99, God appears to Abraham and Sarah again and says, you know that child of promise? He's coming. This time next year, you're going to have a son. 
And when we come to Genesis chapter 21, we find in verses two and three that Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time at which God had spoken to him. And then look at verses 33 and 34 of Genesis 21. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. Can you imagine the relief after decades of waiting for God's promise when God finally answered that promise? I can just picture Abraham and Sarah in their rocking chairs in front of their tent, rocking back and forth in the twilight of the day, sighing a sigh of relief and say, isn't life good? Our 401ks are fully funded. Don't have to work any longer. We've got that baby that God has promised. Isn't God good? Little did Abraham and Sarah know that right around the corner, they were about to face the greatest test of their lives. After these things, here comes the test. Look at verse one. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here am I. God tested Abraham? Hadn't Abraham done enough already? Hadn't he proven his faithfulness? Why in the world would God feel the need to test his friend Abraham? For that matter, why does God test any of us? The biographer F.B. Meyer has some helpful insight here. He says, Satan tempts us that he might bring out the evil that's in our hearts. God tries or tests us that he may bring out all of the good. Trials are therefore God's vote of confidence in us. Isn't that great? God's tests are his vote of confidence in us. You see, there's a difference between a test and a temptation. The difference is not the situation, it's the motivation. Uh, God tests us. He tests us in order to strengthen our faith. Satan tempts us to destroy our faith. And yet, interestingly, the same word in the Bible is used to describe both tests that God performs and trials or, or temptations that Satan used. Remember in James 1, James said, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then later on in that first chapter, James says, let no man say when he is tempted by God, or, or when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God does not tempt anyone. God tests, Satan tempts. But here's the interesting thing. The same Greek word in the New Testament, parosmos, is used to describe both trials, tests for our strengthening, and temptations for our downfall. Same word. So what determines if a difficult situation, that's what the word means, parosmos, a difficult situation. What determines if that difficult situation, let's get specific, a divorce, an illness, the death of a loved one, the loss of a vision. What determines if that difficult situation is a test or a temptation? What determines whether that difficult situation strengthens our faith or destroys our faith? What determines whether a difficult situation drives us closer to God 
or drives us away from God. It's our response. We determine whether a difficult thing is in fact a test for our strengthening or a temptation for our destruction. The Bible says God tested Abraham. And what was the test? Look at verse 2. And God said, Abraham, take now your son, your only son. Well, God, I've got two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. No, the son whom you love, Isaac, the son through whom the promise would come, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Sacrifice Isaac? Wasn't Isaac the child of promise? Wasn't he the one through whom the whole Israelite nation would be born? Why would God do such a thing? Notice that God never explains. He simply commands Abraham to destroy that one person who was most important to him. You know, think about what it would be to offer your child as a burnt sacrifice you kill the child and then set their body on fire on an altar. Think about that. How did Abraham respond to such a thing? If I had received such a command, I would question whether or not it was the voice of God I'd really heard. And if it was the voice of God I'd heard, I would be outraged that God would ask me to do such a heinous thing. Not Abraham. He had heard the voice of God too often to mistake it for anything else. And furthermore, he realized it was within God's right to ask for such a sacrifice. You see, Abraham lived in the Mesopotamian Valley. And no doubt many times, if not every day, as he walked through the valley, he saw these Canaanites offering their firstborn child as a burnt offering to appease their angry imaginary gods. Listen, it wasn't that the Canaanite loved their children any less than Abraham did. But they realized they had sinned. They realized an atonement, a covering needed to be made for their sin. And so they followed those pagan rituals of a burnt offering. I have no doubt that when Abraham witnessed those things, he heard the cries of the children, saw them being consumed in fire. He thanked God that he had never been asked to make such a sacrifice. But it was no surprise when God did come and say, now, Abraham, I'm ready for you to offer your son. How did he respond? Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Notice how Abraham obeyed God immediately. He got up in the early morning the next day. He didn't linger. He obeyed God immediately. Just like the time when God told Abraham to circumcise himself and his servants, he obeyed God immediately. That was the heart of Abraham. They started rising to go to that place that God would show them for the sacrifice. The journey to Moriah, that mountain region where the mountain was that Abraham would sacrifice Isaac on, it was about 50 miles away from where Abraham was. It was a three-day journey by foot. I just pictured the scene of Abraham and his son Isaac, who's now a young, strong teenager carrying the wood on his back. I can just imagine the scene as they walk together and 
Isaac tries to engage his dad in conversation, but for some strange reason, his dad doesn't want to talk. Isaac doesn't understand. And Abraham, he's trying to pray for strength to take every next step as he gets closer and closer to that mountain of sacrifice. Finally, after three days, they come to that place. Verse 5 said, And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship, and we will return to you. Here you see something of the remarkable faith of Abraham. He believed that he and Isaac were going to go. He was going to sacrifice Isaac. And somehow he and Isaac both would return. How would that be possible if Isaac were dead? How would he return with Abraham? The writer of Hebrews gives us some insight into Abraham's thinking. Look at Hebrews 11, verses 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. For Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Underline that word, considered. Abraham considered that God is able. That word considered literally means calculated. Now, this is my imagination, but I think it's sanctified imagination. I think the night before they set on that journey, set out on that journey, Abraham had a sleepless night. He tossed and turned, wouldn't you, as he contemplated what he was about to do that next day. And I think he made a mental list of pros and cons for obeying God. That's what the word calculate means. Have you ever done that before? Listed out the positives and the negatives for taking a certain course of action. The cons were very easy. The reasons not to obey this promise. First of all, it would tear out Abraham's own heart. It would destroy Sarah. It would probably mean the end of their marriage. It would mean the end of the promise of a great nation. There were many reasons to say no to God. But then he thought of the positive reasons to obey God. God had performed a miracle before in the birth of Isaac. God had kept every promise he had ever made to Abraham. God had promised now that he would fulfill his covenant and he swore by his own name and as he weighed the pros and the cons, guess which one won the pros? He calculated and the reason for obeying God was greater than the reason for disobeying God. And so he said, you know what? I'm gonna do what God says and if I kill Isaac, God will bring him back from the dead. Now here's why that is fascinating. Nobody had ever been brought back from the dead before. There had never been one resurrection in the Bible yet. Paul, Abraham had never read 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection of the dead. Abraham had never gone to an Easter service before. He knew nothing about life after death, and yet by faith, he believed that God was able even to bring his son back to life again. Now, that's what you call faith. Abraham believed God. Look at verse six. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. 
And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, here am I, my son, Abraham said. And he said, Isaac said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Can you imagine how that question impacted Abraham? What did Abraham say? Verse 8, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walk on together. Verse 9 says, then they came to the place which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and encouraged and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. F.B. Meyer says, at this point, God draws a curtain around Abraham and Isaac. We don't hear the most intimate conversation as Abraham explains to his son what God had commanded. As Isaac willingly submits to the will of his father and places himself on that altar. As we read this, we become aware that something else is going on here. This is a great foreshadowing of something that would happen in that exact mountain 2,000 years later. As another son, the son of God, walked toward that place of sacrifice with wood on his back, a wooden cross. As even though he could have struggled and resisted his father, just as Isaac could have resisted Abraham, this son didn't resist. Philippians 2 says the son of God emptied himself and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It would be at this very same mountain region that Jesus Christ would one day offer himself as the sacrifice for our sins. You know that spot where Abraham built the altar to altar, offer Isaac as a sacrifice is on Mount Moriah. It's the place where right now there's a Muslim mosque, but one day another temple will be rebuilt. And I remember standing there the first time and I contemplated what was going through Abraham's mind and heart as he considered what he was about to do. And you know, I had to ask myself the honest question. If God commanded me to take a knife and plunge it into the heart of one of my children and offer them as a burnt sacrifice, would I do such a thing? I have to be honest with you. I don't think I could. Before you judge me too harshly, could you do it, honestly? Would you do it? Chuck Swindoll provides some great insight on this passage. He says, at the moment Abraham lifted that knife in the air, all activity in heaven must have ceased as the angels looked down with absolute amazement that a mortal man would love his God so much that he was willing to make that kind of sacrifice. And immediately, verse 11, the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself, called to Abraham from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham said, here am I. God said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad 
and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What's the result of that test? Well, first of all, God himself provided the sacrifice. Look at verse 13. Then Abraham raised his eyes and he looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide God was teaching not just Abraham, but all succeeding generations the most important truth we can ever understand. We cannot make an adequate sacrifice for our sins. God has to provide the sacrifice. Remember the words of Hebrews 10 and 4, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. All those Old Testament sacrifices, they were simply a picture of God's sacrifice the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. God must provide the sacrifice, and God has provided the sacrifice. The second result of this faithfulness was God renews his covenant with Abraham. Look at verse 16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and the sand which is on the seashore. God promised, I'm going to do what I promised to do. And finally, as a result of this obedience, God calls Abraham his friend. This is the point in which God begins to refer to Abraham from that point through all generations as his friend Abraham. Now, I want to show you something very interesting. Hold your place here and turn over to James chapter 2. James' commentary on what this obedience meant. James says in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of his work, Faith was perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled, which said, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You know, that word justified means to make righteous, to declare not guilty. And you may say, well, this sounds familiar, but isn't this a contradiction of what Paul said? Remember in Romans 4, Paul says Abraham was justified apart from his works. And yet James says, Abraham was justified, made right with God by his works. And both men use Abraham. Which is it? Are we made right with God by faith or by works? And yet when you look at this, it's very clear in Romans 4, when Paul says Abraham was made right with God by his faith, he was referring to what happened early in his pilgrimage, Genesis 15, 6, when Abraham believed God. He believed the promises of God, and God counted it as righteousness. On that day, that instant that Abraham believed, immediately in the throne room of heaven, God took Abraham's faith and exchanged it for righteousness. He was made righteous by faith in that Genesis 15, 6 experience. But 40 years later, 
in Genesis 22, when he willingly offered Isaac as a sacrifice, Abraham was shown to be righteous. He was declared righteous by his works. You know, Martin Luther had a, a great word about the relationship between faith and works. He said, faith alone saves a person, but saving faith is never alone. Where there is genuine faith, there will be genuine obedience works as well. We are saved by God's grace alone. But whenever we're saved, there's going to be genuine fruit, including obedience, that shows us to be righteous to others. Abraham, from this point on, was called the friend of God. What does this passage mean to us about our greatest test? I want to give you three quick principles to write down and remember these forever about God's test in our life. Some of you right now are going through a tremendous test. Number one, God's test may contradict reason. Sometimes God asks us to do something that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, but it's only because we have a limited perspective. We can't see the future, but thank God we serve a God who does. He knows the future because he's planned the future. William Barclay, the commentator, said, for everyone at some time, there comes something for which there seems to be no reason and which defies explanation. It is then that a person is faced with life's hardest battle to accept what he can't understand. At such a time, there is only one thing to do, obey and do so without resentment, saying, God, you are love, and I will build my faith on that. God's tests sometimes contradict reason. Secondly, God's tests affect the tender part of our lives. God's tests affect the tender parts of our lives. You know, sometimes we recommit our life to God and we say, God, from this point on, whatever you want to do in my life, anything you want to do in my life, I submit to you right now. You can do anything you want. You can have control over anything in my life. But in our minds, we have that secret compartment that's locked off and blocked away from God that God is not welcome to get involved with. One thing we're holding on to, it may be a relationship, it may be a position, it may be a possession, it may be a dream. But we say, God, you can have anything except this one thing. And yet when God's test comes, you know what he does? He walks right past those anythings and zeroes in on that one thing. If you don't remember one thing else I say today, remember this. God's tests never deal with those things that are trivial to us. God's tests always deal with those things that are treasure to us. It was that way for Abraham. It will be that way for you as well. And finally, and this is encouraging, I hope, to you, God's tests are designed for our strengthening. God puts us sometimes in the furnace of testing, not to destroy us, but to strengthen us. You know, in biblical times, whenever a jeweler was going to make a piece of gold jewelry, he would take a piece of gold, and first of all, 
heated up until it reached a molten state, a liquid state. And when it was at that point, the impurities, any impurities in the gold would rise to the surface and he would skim off those impurities. And the way he knew that those impurities were gone is when he could look into that molten gold and see the reflection of his own face. God does the same thing for us. He sends the fire into our life to burn away the impurities. That's exactly what Peter was talking about in 1 Peter verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is allowing you to go through this test so that the impurities of life can be removed and he can look in our face and see the image of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God is doing. And here's the encouraging word. When you're going through that furnace and the fire is burning hot, Warren Wiersbe says, Remember, God has his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. He knows exactly how long and how hot. And there'll be a time when that furnace will be turned off. You'll emerge from that furnace of testing and your faith will be even stronger and purer than it's ever been. That's what God is doing in your life right now. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.